This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Each week, I'm joined by our co-host, Alicia Jenkins, while I share with you my deep dive into a new case. By sharing a victim's story, we hope to put the pressure on for you to get involved and help make a difference. We present this show to expose the monsters lurking all around us. You are jumping into part three of Susan Savakis, Michael Hughes, and Cheryl Ann Camesso. If you haven't listened to part one and part two, you will have absolutely zero idea of what is going on or where we are at in our coverage of this case. So make sure to jump back and listen to those two parts. This is a long episode today, so let's jump right into it. Are you ready for part three? Okay, so we are back for a third and not so final episode on this case. I know I said this would be the final part, but I could not fit it all in here no matter how hard I tried. And this part is really long. Oh, so. this is our longest one to date then. Yeah, I think we did four parts. Oh, the Valo. Yeah, on the Valo case, but it's as convoluted. This case is probably even more convoluted than that case, but they're the two most confusing just insane cases so I lied part three is not the final one part four will though be the final for sure I thought I could do it I just couldn't there was too much information especially with me using Matt Birkbeck's book both of them I just (laughs) I I was like yeah I can fit this all in and then I'd like you know go back to certain parts of the book and there was always more information I wanted to add that I just it ended up not even being feasible. So yeah, I really like the details anyways. Yeah, exactly. We just can't leave some things out. So it's been a wild ride dissecting the elements of this case. And hopefully I've been able to discuss it in a clear way. Jumping into part three, we are just past the point where Franklin Floyd, aka Clarence Hughes, aka Warren Marshall, aka fake dad, aka fake dad of Michael (laughs) Hughes. Yes, that's exactly who it is. And he had just, you know, raped Sharon in front of um, Jennifer, her friend, who witnessed this rape and uh, when she spent the night at the Marshall's home. And in the last part, you asked me if she was awake or not. And I said that I thought she was awake. And then as I was, you know, doing kind of going back to things and finishing these parts, I, I did see that she said on that Netflix documentary she was awake Warren came in with the gun told her to cover her head with a pillow and lay there oh so she heard it she didn't yeah she didn't like watch it happen but he very much knew she was awake can you imagine that like that would be so gross thinking that your friend's dad was like raping your friend that would be terrifying she said on that documentary that it has affected her whole life and who she is and just like every part of her life. Oh, yeah. Like the trauma from it. So that's like such a devastating thing that happened. Um, and coming back into part three, we'll just 
go on with continuing a little more into the life of Sharon Marshall there in Georgia. So, like I said, Jennifer is officially freaked out of Warren Marshall. She does not spend any more time at Sharon's house, but the girls remain friends. Jennifer had never told her parents what happened that horrific night. So, they go about their lives. They're still unsure of Warren since he makes them uncomfortable, but they don't realize that he is a full-on predator. The Fishers love Sharon, though. She continues to impress them with her grades and her intelligence. They love the influence Sharon has on Jennifer, but Warren continues to creep everyone out. First, her teachers were noticing how demanding Sharon's dad was. It didn't matter what was going on after school or what club she was participating in. She always had to be home by 4.30 p.m. She told teachers she has to get home to take care of her dad. She would get frantic if she was pushed to stay at the school past this time. There were no ifs, ands, or buts about it. She would be home by 4.30 no matter what. Don't you think it's interesting how that kind of stuff can happen to kids and they're so resilient that like she's an awesome like teen yeah but yet she's going through this like really hard time it amazes me how like kids can do that kids are so resilient she's an active member at school she's in the ROTC club and no matter how much she excelled or loved to be there she still drops everything to make it home and on top of that teachers notice that Sharon is dressing somewhat immodest that wasn't a red flag on its own what was a red flag is that her outfits were revealing but they also never matched and Matt Birkbeck explains in his book that it seems to some that it was someone else with little fashion sense picking out Sharon's outfits they wonder was her dad choosing these revealing outfits for her that's very weird no teenage girl's gonna let their dad choose their outfit no and no dad is usually going to send their teenage girl out in a revealing outfit of their choice Exactly. Remember how Sharon has told Jennifer that her mom died after being hit by a car? Well, this is a story she has relayed to multiple people within her school. But Terry Magaro, the teacher who held the meeting for Sharon's transfer to Forest Park from Riverdale, she remembered that Warren had told her during that meeting his wife had died from cancer. It's inconsistent. There are these little hints here and there that something is up with Warren. But everyone shrugs these questions off of their shoulders like Sharon is a good student. Her dad must be doing something right. And it's none of our business how her mom died. If they want to go into detail on this, they will. And Jennifer's parents, they also have another run in with Warren that puts them on edge. It's a Saturday morning after doing some shopping at the local mall. The Fishers return home. As they're pulling close to their home, they spot Warren Marshall's truck in the driveway. Sue and Joel are like, oh, okay, we did not realize Sharon was coming over this weekend. And Jennifer tells her parents that they're right. Sharon wasn't planning to come over, but she's, of course, down to have a friend hang out. She's excited as they pull into the driveway and she looks over into the truck to wave at Sharon. But there's no one in the truck. It's just sitting there empty in the driveway. Weird, but okay. Since no one had discussed Sharon coming over, the Marshalls didn't know what the fish that the Fishers would be at the mall. So everyone is assuming the Marshalls went for a little walk to pass the time by. 
When Joel, Sue, and Jennifer walk into their home, they are completely caught off guard because Warren is laying on their couch, full on sleeping. Sharon is sitting another chair in another chair nearby Warren, and she's looking at the floor ashamed. She's nervous. She's crying. She's anxiously rubbing her hands together, and she doesn't say anything. Warren's eyes pop open, and he sits right up, blurting out that his back was so bad they just had to come inside and sit. The garage was open, so I let myself in. I can't get any doctor's help. I'm in too much pain. I'm not even able to work. It's super weird. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's odd. So odd. I would be pissed if I came home to find, like, my kids. Someone in your house. Friend inside. Yeah. I would be mad to find out, (laughs) like, to even find one of my friends or even one of my family members just sitting inside my house, let alone a guy I don't even like. (laughs) I probably wouldn't be, like, too upset, like, if a neighbor or somebody was over. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, like, definitely some guy I thought was a weirdo. I, yeah, I would be freaked out. You need to get out of here. This is our space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the girls, they run off to upstairs together, and Joel could quite literally punch Warren in the face right about now. He is fuming. Warren did not get into their house through the garage. He knows for a fact it was shut. So his mind is racing. He's wondering how Warren could have possibly come inside while the family was gone. But Joel keeps himself calm, calm because he cares for Sharon and doesn't want Jennifer to lose her best friend. So Warren finishes up his rambling to tell the Fishers that he's leaving Sharon here for the day. He'll come back later. When Warren leaves, the Fishers are just sitting there dumbfounded. They scour their home to see if anything is missing, and they come to the conclusion that nothing is stolen. Man, that dude is super weird, is what Joel is thinking, but still, they thought Sharon was so well-adjusted. Maybe her dad was just one beat off or had no common sense. Well, yeah, but it's like, you don't just go over and be like, I'm going to leave my kid here. What if they had plans? What if? He is so strange weirdo no wonder why they thought he was so weird (laughs) so everyone from the fishers to the forest park teachers and students leave the questions surrounding the marshals to themselves remember sharon transfers to forest park high school in 1984 and the following year after she meets jennifer that summer she is going into her junior year in 1985 This year, she's feeling really good about herself. She's planning out what her future is going to look like. And she starts dating another junior from Forest Park High, Jason Anderson. Jason is a football player, and he's the opposite of Sharon. He's not excelling in school. He isn't thinking about college. He's a troublemaker known for his rowdy attitude. And it's strange to some teachers that with all Sharon had going for her, she would settle for this behavior. Other students are feeling those creepy vibes from Warren as they witness him chaperone each and every date that Sharon and Jason go on. He was always there, like a fly on the wall, but so much more obvious. Finally, it was prom that Jason and Sharon are able to escape the grips of Warren Marshall. They attend the dance alone, and they take this opportunity to really dive physically into their own relationship. It was a teacher of Sharon's that sees the couple getting out of Jason's car to come back into the dance. They had snuck away for a bit and they were looking a little out of sorts when getting out of the car and returning to the dance. We all know what was happening out there and this is normal for many teenage relationships. 
But I guess Sharon's teacher was shocked and caught off guard because she just didn't expect it coming from Sharon, who was such like an exceptional student and seemed to really only focus on her studies and her clubs. Yeah, I mean, those kind those kind of kids still, you know, have sex. I know. I was just going to say <laughs> exceptional students can still be doing it in a car at prom. So <laughs> but it, it just catches this teacher off guard. And the couple doesn't make it long after that. By the following month, they're broken up and soon Sharon is headed into her senior year. It's now 1986, and during this year, one of Sharon's dreams come true. Sharon is accepted into Georgia Tech University with a full scholarship through the ROTC program. Sharon could breathe a little easier, and Jennifer felt the excitement in her voice busting through the phone. Sharon had called her squealing. Her dream of becoming an aerospace engineer and working for NASA finally felt within her reach. The only thing Sharon was weary of during this phone call was the fact that her dad did not know yet, and she's not sure he's going to let her go. But when he does find out, he seems excited for her. He's proud. He boasts about it. His daughter is going to be an aerospace engineer. And as Sharon's senior year goes on, teachers and students are starting to notice something change in her. She's looking to be pregnant. This was a problem because if it's the case, Sharon does have to give up that ROTC scholarship so another student has the opportunity to go to Georgia Tech. Teachers push her to tell them, but she says no. Soon, though, it's undeniable, and when she's asked a second time, she caves. Yes, I'm pregnant. Sharon Marshall was due with a baby in July following her senior year. She tells this teacher that the father of the baby is her current boyfriend, Curtis Flornay. So they just thought that she looked pregnant? Yeah, they could just tell she was looking pregnant as the year comes to an end. And I'm sure in those last few months of school, it just is completely obvious as she probably was like in those last couple months, she would have been six, seven months along. Yes, it reminds me of when I was pregnant in high school, just walking around with my big belly. <laughs> with with me inside of there. <laughs> with you. I had you in August and then graduated in June. You can only imagine how huge I was. Was it hard, like being pregnant in school, people talking about it and stuff or no? I just, well, I think you kind of know me. I don't really care. I didn't really care if they were. I mean, I even went to my church class, like my seminary class that we have during school and like sat there and did the class. I was going to say, I could see you not caring that much, like whatever. So yeah, very similar to Sharon's situation where she has the baby after she graduates, just in the months following. And when Sharon's dad finds out about the pregnancy, he loses his mind. He's mad. He's telling her that she screwed up her entire life. How could she? Of course, he is not taking any responsibility for abusing Sharon her entire life and being a full-on predator. Warren does not allow Sharon to walk at her graduation and receive her diploma, and he also forces her to give up that scholarship. She isn't going to college anymore. As the end of the school year approaches, it's written all over Sharon's face that she is depressed. Her dreams had crumbled right before her eyes. The anger she had for Warren burned inside of her chest, and finally she was going to stand up to him. Curtis and Sharon decide to run off together. This is her chance to escape him. Curtis could protect her, and they can raise their baby together in a healthy environment far from her predatory father. 
When they start their trek, the couple makes it across state lines and into Alabama. But their fairy tale is short-lived. Warren was able to track Sharon and Curtis down quickly, finding them at a motel in Alabama. He even knew what room they were in without alerting the duo that he had found them. He busts into the room unannounced, grabs Sharon's arm, and leads her out of the room. He tells Curtis there will be no discussion right now. Just get some sleep. We can talk it out in the morning. And then Warren walks Sharon out of the motel room, leaving Curtis behind. When the sun rises in the morning, Warren and Sharon are gone. They aren't going to be discussing this at all, apparently. Instead, Curtis finds a note slid into the motel room. It's from Warren. The baby isn't yours. Leave Sharon alone. So... Now Sharon is back in the grips of Warren Marshall, who we know is really Franklin Floyd. Just a little reminder for you here in case you forgot. And, you know, she's sad that she's back with him. The day her baby is going to be born is quickly approaching. Warren tells Sharon they will be leaving the state. They're moving. Sharon's heart sinks. She had made such incredible friends in her last few years here at Forest Park High. And then there was Jennifer. She was going to miss them more than she could even put into words. One of her best friends besides Jennifer actually attending school with her at Forest Park. Because remember, Jennifer goes to another school in Georgia. They don't go to the same school. So this friend at her school is Lynn Clemens. He is a year younger than Sharon and the two just click at school. She calls him Ray Baby and always puts a smile on his face. He was bullied constantly for his sexual preferences, but Sharon was his little piece of high school happiness. He felt extreme guilt after finding out about the torture Sharon lived through, and this feeling was felt among many other students and teachers at Forest High School, at Forest Park High School. The many clubs she participated in and the friends she gained were all a beautiful escape from the hell she had been living in for as long as she could remember. This was one of the areas she had stayed in the longest. Through the investigation into Franklin Floyd, the kidnapping of Michael Hughes, and the murder of Tanya Hughes, a.k.a. Sharon Marshall, detectives find that Sharon was first enrolled into the public school system in 1975. At that time, Franklin was going by the alias Trenton Davis. She was, Sharon was believed to be about five or six years old when she enters the school system in the first grade. A few years into their stay in Oklahoma City, a babysitter accuses Franklin of sexually abusing his daughter. He flees, and from here, Franklin hops around, dragging Sharon along with him. There's a gap for two years where they seemingly vanish, and then by 1980, Franklin takes on the aliases of a Warren and Sharon Marshall when they move to Louisville, Kentucky. Two years later, Warren moves Sharon to Atlanta, Georgia. It's her freshman year now, and she starts at Northside High School. In less than a year, she transfers to Baldwin High School in May 1983, still there near Atlanta. By September, she's pulled from Baldwin High School. So when Warren starts sharing at Baldwin, it's right before the school year ends and then makes her transfer right after the new school year begins. And this is when Sharon goes to Riverdale High. There in Georgia still, and is soon pulled to attend Forest Park High School. She does not want to pick up and move again right as she's graduating. She doesn't want to leave any of these people behind, but she knows that she does not have a choice. Her dad had found her when she tried to go off on her own, and he told her if she does it again, he will kill her. So Sharon dials the phone, and on the other end of the line, Jennifer picks up. 
She's excited to hear from Sharon because the last few months had gone by in a flash and the girls lost track of time. They hadn't reconnected in a while, and this is when Jennifer finds out that the Marshalls will be moving. Sharon will not be going to college, and she's having a baby. One week later, Sharon comes to Jennifer's house one last time to say goodbye. She was clearly embarrassed of the baby bump she's sporting. The Fishers had always loved the example Sharon was on Jennifer. Would they be disappointed? But their hearts just hurt for Sharon, and they hug her, telling her that they are always here to help, and she can call if she needs anything. Jennifer places her hands on Sharon's tummy, feeling the baby kick just before she runs out to her dad's car. And with that, the Marshalls are gone. They leave and move to Phoenix, Arizona into a small trailer. Sharon starts working as a hostess at a restaurant in the Marriott Hotel. Sharon has her baby. It's a boy, and Sharon was forced by Warren to give her baby up for adoption. It was her dad that secured a doctor couple to adopt Sharon's baby. It was devastating to her to watch her first baby be taken out of the room and handed over to another couple. A piece of her is taken that day. Soon after the birth, Sharon comes back to Georgia to visit the Fishers. To Jennifer, Sharon looks so beautiful. She's glowing. She seems so much happier than the last time Jennifer had seen her. The girls have this amazing week together. Sharon loves being in the Fisher's home. We know she's being abused at the hands of Warren Marshall, but keep in mind, the Fishers don't know this. They think he's a straight weirdo, but they don't know much else about him. So, one evening during Sharon's visit, she asks Sue if they can sit down for a serious conversation. And it's during that combo that Sharon asks Sue if she can come to Georgia permanently and live with them. Sharon explains how she loves the Fishers and how her life in Arizona is dreadful. She just doesn't like it there. Well, Sue Fisher tells Sharon that they love her and she's always welcome, but it's not up to them. Explaining to Sharon that she has her own dad who would have to be okay with the living situation in order for them to accept it. And Joel Fisher agrees. Without having permission from Sharon's father, they just don't feel right about taking a young girl They're in. probably nervous that he'll kill him. <laughs> they are probably nervous about his reaction because he... Won't react well to is it. ...is always off his rocker. So, and they just, they're just like, well, you have a parent. Like, we can't just take you. Yeah. But I if mean, he says yes... Anyone would do that probably, you know. Well, any... Yeah. Any... Like normal parent. Right. Yeah. This obviously would have been very helpful to Sharon, but they just they just could not have known what was going on. Sharon is like visibly upset when she gets her answer from Sue and Sue gets this gut feeling that Sharon is desperate and she asks her, Sharon, what is wrong? Is there something else going on? But Sharon denies any problems at home, just saying through her held back tears that she would really love to stay here. However, when the Fishers make it clear that Warren would have to be on board for them to agree, Sharon changes her tune, telling them she needs to leave. What was she thinking? She needs to go home and help her dad. She does everything for him. And the following day, the Fishers take Sharon to the airport. Joel had bought her an airline ticket home, and the mood was somber. Sharon and Jennifer were both sad, but Sharon had this extra layer of devastation. She really didn't want to go home to her dad, but she puts on a brave face and travels back to the man that was keeping her captured. So that job Sharon was working at the Marriott, this is where she meets boyfriend Greg Higgs. This is Michael Hughes' biological father. 
So Franklin being fake dad of Michael, who was kidnapped, Greg is real dad. Okay. Greg was close to Sharon's age when they meet. He's freshly graduated and now he's attending college. He was living in an apartment near the restaurant and paying his bills by working at the restaurant in the evening when after he finishes up his school day. It's the same old story with Warren being an absolute nightmare to have around. He's bugging people around the restaurant for money. He's far too involved in the relationship, but Sharon blows it off, telling Greg that her father is just protective of her. Greg falls quickly in love with Sharon. She was beautiful from the inside out. Heartbreak filled him when Sharon is just gone one day, leaving only a note behind. I'm sorry, it's not your fault I left. My dad's health is bad. We had to move to Texas. Greg can't find a way to get in touch with Sharon, and he figures he will never see her again. But he would have one more shot at some closure when Sharon randomly shows back up at the restaurant eight months later. She's working there again one day when he comes in, and her face lights up. Greg, I'm back. We just got, we just got back here after moving around a bit. Please don't hate me. And he doesn't hate her. He had missed her. The romance blooms yet again, regardless of Sharon's creepo of a dad. The love was never lost, and they just picked back up where they left off. They were smitten with each other. But by the fall of 1987, Greg comes into work one day to find out the rug had been pulled from under him again. Sharon had quit her job and left. This time, there was no note, no goodbye. Sharon was just gone, and Greg never sees her again. Little does he know that Sharon was pregnant with his son. He doesn't find this out until two years later in 1980 when Franklin, calling as Warren Marshall, tells Greg that Sharon just died. She has a two-year-old, and he's yours. That's why we left Arizona. She didn't want you to quit school and ruin your life. Will you take this little boy? Greg says yes, of course. He, I mean, he's caught off guard, but he's not going to deny his son. But then Warren never calls him back again. So where did the Marshalls go after leaving Arizona? That fall of 1987, they had picked up and moved to Tampa, Florida. Tampa is the last place Warren and Sharon end up before moving to Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1989. We already learned about their time there in Tulsa as Clarence and Tanya Hughes way back in part one. While in Tampa before Tulsa, Sharon gets a job working as a stripper in the Mons Venus Strip Club. This is a popular spot in downtown Tampa for adult entertainment. Businessman, <laughs> businessman, businessman, but yes, businessmen and bands with with some fame found themselves here at the club. It was exciting, but never the life Sharon imagined for herself. She was forced by Warren to work here. We know that, but the people at Mons Venus back around 1988 did not know that. They did notice, though, how young Sharon looked. She was timid, and she never walked around fully nude. She would cover herself up in a lace cover-up, and she was the only one who wouldn't walk around with nothing on. And that was like a sad little detail, because that obviously shows that she's a little bit uncomfortable with this and is not choosing to do this. How old is she now by this time? 18. Like 18? Yeah. Okay. While in Tampa, Warren and Sharon live in a couple different trailer homes before moving into the Golden Lantern, Lantern Mobile Home Park just outside of St. Petersburg. The, they were here at their last Florida home from January 1989 to June 1989. 
It was the same year that a warrant for insurance fraud and theft is put out for Warren Marshall. This had come in May of 1989 after Warren steals a boat and drills holes in the bottom of it, sinking it into the Tampa Bay. It is an effort to claim insurance money on it. Not sure how he thought that was going to work out in his favor, and it doesn't. One month later, Warren and Sharon are on the run again. And right about the time they leave, the mobile home they were living in was set ablaze, burned down by a house fire. Oh, geez. So let's go back kind of to the beginning of their time in Tampa before they do leave. It's during that first year in Florida that Sharon has her second baby. This is Michael Gregory Marshall, who we know as Michael Hughes, Michael Anthony Hughes. So they change his middle name and last name when they get new aliases. Remember, he was born on March 21st, 1988 in Tampa, Florida. Sharon was six months pregnant with him when she started work at the Mons Venus. Her bosses had told her to lose weight, but then as she grows bigger, they realize she was carrying a baby. But apparently, the customers approve of a pregnant dancer. They're loving it. So she danced right up until the day she gives birth. Just after Michael's birth that same year, Warren, Sharon, and Michael leave Florida for a short stint and stay in Louisville, Kentucky. Sharon is working there in Louisville as a stripper, just like she had been in Tampa. Now she is at a place called the Godfather Club. But on Christmas Eve 1988, Sharon is found inside of her car overdosing. She was alone, so the paramedics transfer her to Humana University Hospital. Doctors are able to revive her, but when she wakes, she won't discuss how she ended up in that state or what was going on in her life leading her to be found in this way. Further testing needs to be done, and doctors inform Sharon that she is freshly pregnant, probably somewhere between four and eight weeks along. This is her third baby. Oh my gosh. Yes. So within... It's happening soon. Yeah. Within just a few years, she gets pregnant three times. When Warren is called by the hospital, being Sharon's emergency contact, he quickly shows up, packs up her things, and they bolt. Now they go back to Tampa, Florida yet again. So do you notice this pattern? Each time Sharon became pregnant, Warren would run with her. He never allowed her to connect closely with anyone else, and he was not going to let Sharon start a family outside of him. So she gets pregnant with her first baby. It's a boy in high school and they leave they go to phoenix arizona before she has the baby and then she gets pregnant in arizona with greg higgs where she has michael they leave before she can have the baby so before like any of the dads ever meet the babies and then they leave tampa probably to like try to go on this run again but she ends up getting pregnant in Louisville so they leave again and go back to Tampa before she has the baby this is like what he does I would think it's because he didn't want anyone to find out that it was his if it was his but I guess it it makes more sense he just doesn't want her to be with anyone Mm -hmm. yeah he's just taking her from each connection she makes and each guy she meets that third baby is a girl she's adopted out as well but we will dive into her in part four by 1989 Sharon has made some friends during her job at the Mons Venus nightclub but a lot of her co-workers were weary of her dad and they don't hide it Warren was straight up banned from working there back in 1988 right after Sharon had started work 
it had grossed management out that Warren would come inside to sit and watch his own daughter dancing nude on stage. They could not stand to witness it any longer. The bouncers were not shy about it. They call him a weirdo. They tell him to stay out and they throw him into the parking lot. From here forward, he would just sit there in the parking lot alone, waiting for Sharon to get off work. It was January of 1989 that Carrie Strugel meets Sharon at the Mons Venus. He was a bartender at a restaurant downtown, and he is a customer there at the club. It was Sharon that keeps him coming back day after day. She seems so innocent and sweet, but you guessed it, her dad was far too much for any normal person to endure. Carrie hated how Warren lived off of Sharon and takes all of her money she made through dancing. He hates how Warren was so demanding. He could see the fear radiate through Sharon when Warren commands her to do something. She always did as she was told. Carrie notices the gun Warren always keeps around and the way he was always bothered by Michael, telling Sharon to shut the kid up. Carrie especially hated the way Warren looked at and spoke about his daughter sexually. One disturbing conversation had was when Warren is telling Carrie that Sharon needs breast implants so that she can be in pornographic movies. Warren grabs Sharon's nipple right in front of Carrie, telling him how beautiful her breasts will be when the implants are done. I told you in I know. Disgusting. It's like the most uncomfortable. I told you in part one that the implant thing would come back. Oh, yeah, you did. And here we are. I mean, does he not think that's weird that you're grabbing your daughter's nipple? Like right in front of her boyfriend and like she needs breast implants. I really want my my child to get into pornographic movies like this Carrie dude is like, dude, stop grabbing my girlfriend's nipple. You're a freak. (laughs) But it's so weird. He is so caught off guard. And like even just saying her dad grabbed her nipple like, oh, That gives me like the heaves (laughs) running down my legs. It's disgusting. I can't stand the thought. It's like uncomfortable, uncomfortable laughter. I hate it. (laughs) So it's a bit after this conversation that Warren does force Sharon to have that breast implant surgery, saying bigger tits means more money. Literally, he's a sicko. (laughs) She's still dating Carrie, and when he sees Sharon, he is mortified. She tells him that she's gotten breast implants, but remember, like I just said, there's something that doesn't quite seem quite right about the implants. We talked about that in part one. Warren wants Sharon to have this new set of breasts so badly, but he doesn't want to pay the price. Typically, you would pay around $5,000 in Florida at this time for this surgery, but Warren finds a cheap surgeon out of Florida that will do it for $1,500. The price was obvious when looking at the implants, and Sharon spent a week in excruciating pain. There was a couple that specifically remembers Warren saying to them, don't her tits look nice, and doesn't Sharon's ass look great in those shorts? They're like, um, excuse me, sir, that's your daughter? (laughs) We are uncomfortable. Like, we hate this. Yeah. So, on top of all of that, Carrie is taken back when Warren tells him about a sexual video he made on the beach of Sharon and her friend from the Mons Venus, Cheryl Ann Camesso. Warren asks if Carrie wants to see the video, and he's like, "I, I guess. 
But before it can get started, Sharon runs off into her bedroom. She's embarrassed. She does not want it to be seen by her boyfriend. So thankfully, it doesn't get played. Carrie is pretty spooked at this point, but he loves Sharon. He tries to get Sharon to confide in him about her late mother or why there was this deep sadness he could see living inside of her or why her dad was such a freak. But she never, like she never confides in him what is really going on. The video Warren told Carrie about, though, was unfortunately played in front of someone else. Babysitter Michelle had been over watching Michael one night and her boyfriend Jason is there with her. Warren is warning them that he has things hidden there in the trailer that she shouldn't get into. This is when he shows her a gun and she doesn't think much of it. She thinks this is a dad telling her like, hey, I have guns in here. Like, don't, you know, make sure you don't mess with them. So she isn't scared of Warren at this point. And then he grabs a VHS tape, popping it into the VCR. Immediately, Michelle can see it's Sharon on the beach with a friend. Michelle also recognizes her friend. It's Cheryl. She's so beautiful and nice. Michelle had always loved seeing Cheryl drive through the neighborhood in her red Corvette. Cheryl would always wave to Michelle and she it made her feel really good. The video quickly goes from being on the beach to being very sexual. The girls are rubbing each other's breasts with oil and Michelle hops up. She's only 15 years old and this is too much for her. She's like, all right, I've got to go. I'm heading home. It is past my curfew. And Warren tells Michelle that she is never to talk about this again. Throughout 1988, Sharon had made friends with a fellow dancer named Heather. The cool thing about Heather is that she worked these private parties. The dancers would come in, do a few dances, and leave with a large amount of money. These were professional settings. The viewers weren't allowed to touch the dancers, and the first time Heather brings Sharon along, the man who hires her for that particular party pulls Heather aside, telling her she needs to get control of Sharon. She was offering men at the party sex for money. And Heather doesn't know Sharon very well at this point, because this is in 1988, so this is jumping back to right when Sharon first starts at the Mons Venus. When she meets Cheryl Ann Camesso, that's the following year in 1989. So when Heather confronts Sharon, clearly angry, Sharon apologizes, telling Heather that it was her dad who told her she needed to do this. Heather is pissed. She already hates Warren Marshall. During her time hanging out with Sharon, Warren had made Heather so uncomfortable. He talked about her breast implants to Heather. He talked about his daughter becoming a big star. And just like he had with Carrie, Warren grabs at Sharon's breast right in front of Heather. During one night sleeping in the Marshall home, Heather hears an insane amount of sexual remarks from Warren to Sharon. She takes these concerns back to her fellow dancers at the Mons Venus, telling them that she's pretty sure Warren is having sex with Sharon. Everyone thinks baby Michael is his. We know Franklin, a.k.a. Warren, is not Michael's dad. But this thought comes to people because it was so clear something sinister is going on with Warren regarding his daughter. Sharon hears the rumors by the end of 1988. She doesn't know that Heather is fueling these rumors. And it's not even that Heather intentionally spreads them. She was just speaking on serious concern for Sharon and the environment she saw that Sharon was stuck in. Sharon starts crying to Heather, telling her that there is no incest going on between her and her dad. 
She knows who the baby's dad is. It's an old boyfriend back in Arizona. Remember, Greg Higgs, who got left in the dust. Sharon gets more silent at work after this, keeping to herself. And two months later, Warren and Sharon are gone. Did they leave because of the incest rumors going around? Who knows why, but this is when Warren had taken Sharon back to Louisville where she overdoses and finds out she's pregnant for that third time. She's back at the Mons Venus in January 1989, and this is when she becomes quick friends with Cheryl Camesso, the other girl in the video Warren had played for Michelle. Cheryl was born in 1970 and was the oldest child of three. Her parents are John and Louise Camesso. The couple is from New York, but after marrying, they move down to Florida. Cheryl drops out of high school at 16 years old and runs from home. Cheryl starts work as a stripper in Orlando. John begs his daughter to come home. He can help her lead a different lifestyle. John and Louise had just divorced that Christmas of 1988, so John is offering Cheryl to come to his home and stay. She comes, but the stay doesn't last long. One month later, she is gone and she picks up a job working at the Mons Venus Strip Club. While she's here, she dances as Stevie. It's March of 1989 that Cheryl moves in with Warren and Sharon Marshall. She had lived with Heather and another girl those first couple months, but she loved to walk around the home naked. She's just comfortable that way. Her roommates don't love it, so they ask her to leave. This is about the time the beach video is made. Warren talks Cheryl into it by telling her he would send the video to producers and get the girls into pornographic films. By telling Cheryl that he can get her photos to Playboy, she agrees to pose nude for him and ultimately have sex with him. She doesn't want to, but she thinks he could advance her career and really get her somewhere. While he takes this as an official relationship, she can hardly stand the thought of the sexual encounter. And Heather, back at the Mons Venus Strip Club, a co-worker of both Cheryl and Sharon's, She hates Warren, so she flips out on Cheryl when she hears the rumor of their relationship and the video he has made. Cheryl blows it off, telling Heather he can get her into Playboy. But Heather scoffs, like as if Warren is just a creep. Stay away from him. Cheryl doesn't listen. She continues to hang out with Sharon. Cheryl even spends time with Warren alone, but she doesn't think of him as her boyfriend. She doesn't want to keep having sex with him. So it's one day when they're out on the lake. I'm assuming in the boat he had stolen and has that warrant by March of this year, you know, for the insurance fraud thing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. This is all around that same time. So they're out on the boat. Warren comes on to Cheryl. She tells him she isn't interested in having sex with him. And he reacts by punching her in the face, trying to choke her and just beating her up. She ends up laying on the floor of the boat and Warren it gets off of her for a minute and then starts coming at her again. Cheryl is shaking and the only thing she can think to do is jump off the boat and swim away. She had to get away from this monster. From here, Cheryl is dead set on taking Warren down, as most people would be. He is a predator. She knows that Warren lives off of Sharon's money. On top of her income at the club, Sharon was getting welfare checks, so Cheryl calls to report Sharon, telling the state that Sharon works makes more than $1,500 a week. 
The marshals are immediately cut off from the welfare and informed there will be an investigation into Sharon's income. Warren is red with anger. He calls Mons Venus screaming, where can I find Cheryl? It's that same day Warren is in the parking lot at the Mons Venus while Sharon works inside. Now Cheryl pulls in for her shift. Warren jumps out of her car, grabbing Cheryl, out of his car, grabbing Cheryl, and gets in her face. He's calling her a bitch. Heather hears the exchange and intervenes. Cheryl tells Heather about the assault, and Heather says, I cannot protect you from them. Over the next week, Warren becomes increasingly obsessive about Cheryl. He keeps calling the Mons Venus, asking if Cheryl's working, asking what Cheryl's dad's last name is. He's trying to figure out where her parents lived. The dancers are all on edge and worried for Cheryl. They try hard to limit all contact between Sharon's creepo dad and Cheryl Camesso. When leaving work one evening, Heather sees Cheryl and Warren arguing. She's at his car window and he's screaming that he will kill her. Heather walks Cheryl to her car, telling, telling Warren to back off. But after this day, Heather never sees Cheryl again. Months later, Cheryl's dad, John Camesso, gets a call that Cheryl's red Corvette had been abandoned at the St. Petersburg airport. She had saved up $8,000 for her red Corvette. It was a down payment, and her dad was the co-signer on the loan to cover the rest of the car. And this is why he gets the call. He's pretty annoyed, thinking Cheryl irresponsibly jetted off somewhere and just left the car there in long-term parking at the airport. So he starts calling family members, but there's no luck. No one has heard from Cheryl. Then he calls any friends he knows of. Still no luck. Not even Cheryl's co-workers had heard from her. It's been over a month by the time John receives this call. In June of 1989, John Camesso files a missing persons report for his daughter, Cheryl Ann Camesso. Oh. Mm. Not, not good. Mm -mm. Around this time that Cheryl and Warren are having all of this contention, Sharon is pregnant. I'm just throwing this in here to give you the full picture and remind you that she had found out she was pregnant in December of 1988. So this is all happening around five months later when Cheryl goes missing. And of course, at this same time, Warren takes Sharon and Michael on the road. They're fleeing again. The Montevinas workers thought that the marshals had left because of the incest allegations, especially now that it was so obvious Sharon was pregnant. Everyone figured her third baby was Warren Marshall's. She had cried to Heather before they had fled, telling her that the baby was not Warren's. She promised. Before she goes on to explain that Warren did sexually abuse her throughout her childhood, but that it wasn't going on anymore. Michelle tells producers, Michelle, this is the babysitter, so going back to babysitter Michelle, she tells producers on Netflix's Girl in a Picture documentary that when Warren and Sharon had to suddenly pick up and move out of Tampa, Florida, they asked her to pick up their mail and keep an eye on the trailer. Michelle happily agrees, but she is sad to see Michael go. He was her little buddy. And just days after the Marshalls run, Michelle sees a man go over to the trailer. He walks inside and she figures it's a friend of Warren's gathering some of their things. He walks out, he drives away, and as he's leaving, the big explosion occurs. This is when the trailer burns down in that house fire I mentioned earlier. The neighbors around the trailer park believe Warren Marshall hired someone to do this. 
With that, the Marshalls are gone from Florida in an instant. Carrie Strugel, remember him, he's Sharon's boyfriend during all of this time. He is just left wondering why Sharon had gone without a goodbye and without an explanation. She simply left him some roses and a couple of lockets. He does not think Sharon would ever do something like this to him, and he expects a call soon. But he would only ever receive a call from Warren Marshall, telling him that he needs to stay away from Sharon. So on their way out of town, they stop in New Orleans and get married. And now this all ties together, right? Warren and Sharon Marshall had to leave Florida, get new aliases, and get married because Warren knows that people will suspect him in the disappearance of Cheryl Camesso. He knows that the law would be looking for a man, his daughter, and her son. They would not be looking for a man with his wife and their son. They wouldn't be looking for Clarence, Tanya, and Michael Hughes. Franklin Floyd had already spent almost two decades on the run by this point in his life. He was an expert in fleeing and avoiding arrest. So now we know how Franklin and Sharon ended up in Tulsa, Oklahoma as Clarence and Tanya before Tanya ends up murdered in a hit and run accident and Franklin kidnaps her son Michael from his foster parents four years after her death. Remember, after Michael's kidnapping, the news outlets are blasting pictures of these three all over, and the FBI starts their manhunt for Franklin Floyd. With a call from Jennifer, detectives dive into the life of Sharon Marshall and learn so much more about Michael's mom, who they had only previously known as Tanya Hughes. So the murder of Tanya Hughes, a.k.a. Sharon Marshall, is being sort of investigated hand-in-hand with Michael Hughes' kidnapping because they're finding out information about Sharon as they try to navigate where Michael came from, where Franklin has been before, and where he could be now. Agent Joe Fitzpatrick starts gathering information and it becomes clear to law enforcement that Sharon was sexually abused by Franklin throughout her life. Detectives put together a paper trail that leads them through each school and area Sharon had lived with Franklin. Fitzpatrick goes through photos found in their residence in Oklahoma. There are pictures of Michael and many more pictures of Sharon. Fitzpatrick's heart physically hurts for Sharon. He thought of the many years she had to endure under Franklin's abuse, and he wondered where she came from. He wanted to give her memory answers to what had happened to her, and he wanted to find her son, Michael. So he dedicates himself to this case, and this becomes a huge part of his life. Diving back into Franklin's past, detectives find that in 1962, Franklin is convicted for the rape of a four-year-old girl. We know he is convicted again in the 1990s for the attack on Carrie Box. It's clear that this man is deeply troubled. Each day that passes makes Fitzpatrick sick. It feels like Michael was in more danger as the time goes on. They need to find Franklin quick. Five days into the investigation, a detective rushes into Fitzpatrick's office. His face is filled with pride as he shows Fitzpatrick the photo he had just obtained through interviewing Jim Ennis, a man who worked with Franklin back in the 1970s. Jim had said this photo was given to him by the man law enforcement knows as Franklin Floyd. When Jim had worked with him, though, he was going by the name Trenton Davis, and his daughter in the picture was called Suzanne, not Sharon. When Trenton, a.k.a. Franklin, suddenly leaves the area where he worked with Jim, his memory faded. 
Jim hadn't thought of this photo for years, but in the weeks before the disappearance, Franklin just shows up and finds Jim. He's like, hey man, remember that photo I gave you of me and my daughter literally forever ago? Well, I need it back. Jim obviously is like, yeah, I don't even know where that photo could be. That was like many years ago, more than a decade ago. After Franklin leaves, Jim's mind is just like he's racking his brain trying to think why Franklin would need this photo. And he decides to check out his old photo boxes to see if he can find anything in there. And on a whim, he's able to find it. Now, he doesn't know how to get back in contact with Franklin, who he only knows as Trenton. As the FBI was investigating, they questioned co-workers, neighbors, and other people that knew Franklin Floyd throughout his many stops in the different states they discover he had been at through the years. So they come across Jim Enton on their own. They arrive asking him if he can answer questions about his old co-worker. And this is the first time Jim finds out that Trenton was really Franklin Floyd and a very dangerous man. Jim immediately shares that Franklin had been by weeks earlier looking for this photo. And then he hands the evidence over to police. Creepy Franklin holding a little blonde girl with a sad look on her face. The little girl is around five or six years old. So this photo is coming to Fitzpatrick right as they start the investigation into Michael Hughes' kidnapping. So they don't quite know all this information we've gone over so far. Fitzpatrick takes the photo and he's eyeing it closely. He's glancing between the photos he has of Clarence and Tanya Hughes. He even compares the photo of the little girl to Michael Hughes. The resemblance is uncanny. Fitzpatrick knows that according to Sharon, a.k.a. Tanya's death certificate, she died at the age of 20. This is her real age if that if that Franklin did in fact start her into school at age five or six because they know she went into first grade at age five or six in 1975. So this is the start point they go from and they're able to backtrack Sharon's life. They still don't know exactly who she is. They don't have a birth certificate for her, but it's estimated she was born somewhere between 1969 and 1970. Well, Franklin was in prison for the the rape of that four-year-old girl from 1963 to 1972. There was zero possibility that Franklin Floyd is Sharon Marshall's biological father. Fitzpatrick has this aching pain washed through his body as he comes to grips with the realization that Franklin Floyd probably kidnapped this little blonde girl just like he had with the four-year-old he sexually assaulted. But with this girl, Suzanne, he kept her for all of these years until he murders her in 1990. As the search goes on for Michael Hughes, Franklin Floyd's third kidnapping victim, details emerge in the media. The news outlets report that there is concern Franklin kidnapped the boy's mother years earlier and had now kidnapped her son. One segment of an article reads, quote, Michael Anthony Hughes may be being hidden by a man who abducted, raised, and married the boy's mother. The FBI is one step closer, but still just so far away. So this is Suzanne, but they're still left wondering who she is. Where did Franklin get her? The panic inside detectives gets stronger surrounding the kidnapping of Michael Hughes. The little six-year-old boy could be in real danger with Franklin. 
On Saturday, October 2nd, 1994, Officer Emilio Iala is working patrol in Dallas, Texas when he comes across an abandoned truck in an employee parking lot at the Wonder Bread factory. He had come to help with an event, but workers at the factory approach him, telling him about this abandoned truck and how they think it was a stolen vehicle. So Emilio calls the license plate in to find out that it has been reported as stolen. It was suspected to have been stolen by none other than Franklin Floyd. It's the white truck stolen out of Oklahoma City from that principal who Franklin held at gunpoint and tied to a tree down the road from Michael's elementary school. It's been almost six weeks now in the search for Michael, and with this information, Fitzpatrick is able to get an arrest warrant for kidnapping from Mark Yancey with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Fitzpatrick decides that Franklin has a pattern. He pretty much stays around the same states, Oklahoma, Kentucky, Georgia, Alabama, and Florida, and they've discovered multiple aliases of his. So Fitzpatrick puts a flag on each one of the aliases Franklin had used before. It's a Florida DMV worker who notifies the FBI that Warren Marshall had renewed his Florida driver's license, this, and this man was in Kentucky. His new address is handed over. Fitzpatrick hops on the first flight to Kentucky. An undercover officer dresses up as a UPS worker under the disguise of delivering Franklin's renewed driver's license to him. When he accepts it, local police, six FBI agents, and Fitzpatrick surround Franklin, explaining that they have an arrest warrant for federal kidnapping for Franklin Floyd. Franklin's like, no, no, you have the wrong person. But Fitzpatrick casually pulls out a fingerprinting card and tells Franklin, well, we're about to find out. He caves, sighing, all right, I'm Franklin Floyd. It's November 10th, 1994. Franklin is handcuffed and taken into custody. Franklin says Michael is not there with him, but that the little boy is fine. The search of Franklin's belongings produce a bus ticket from Atlanta, Georgia to Louisville, Kentucky. A wallet with a photo of Suzanne as a teenage Sharon, a photo of Michael, and a third photo of a girl with dark curly hair. They didn't know it then, but that photo is of Cheryl Camesso. An address book is among these things, and it contains contact information for Franklin's sister and his old prison friend. What's really haunting about this address book is that Franklin has the name and current address of the woman who he had raped when she was just a four-year-old girl back in 1962. Uh. This is 22 years later. Isn't that scary? Yes. And this is when he's on the run with Michael. So what was he like? Why did he have that info? What was his plan? This man is just psychotic. He is psycho. 22 years later, you find where this girl now grown into an adult woman is living. That is scary. Because he went to prison, but then was let out. He went to prison for it. He went to prison for it prison for it for about nine years but then was let out i mean that woman had to have been terrified uh yeah for good reason he's let out by the time she's 13 her address is in his address book i i was like so shocked by that yeah disgusting so he's taken back to the station and franklin will not be clear on where suzanne came from He goes on to talk about how he raised such a good girl, but she turned into a, quote, whore 
he doesn't want to be asked any more questions about Suzanne, a.k.a. Sharon. Franklin also says that the mafia was following him because Tanya stole money from them, and it's the mafia that took Michael from him. That's why he doesn't have Michael right now when he's getting arrested. Oh my gosh, yeah. An obvious lie, Mm -hmm. and Fitzpatrick is like, sure, whatever, we don't believe you. He is positive whatever happened to Michael was done back in Atlanta because the bus ticket investigators find in Franklin's belongings was a one-way from Atlanta for only one passenger. Franklin spends time in an Indiana correctional facility awaiting to be extradited back to Oklahoma where he will face his kidnapping charges. The Louisville field office was able to track his bus ticket back to Atlanta and they go from here. On September 21st, Franklin had checked himself into the Grady Memorial Hospital for eight days. He was being treated for psychiatric issues, telling doctors that he had gone through a traumatic event. He's not ready to talk about it yet, but he can say that his wife and son have died, and he was feeling depressed in his grief. Doctors found Franklin's story odd. He is yet again rubbing people the wrong way. After his hospital stay, it was a traveler's aid office that gives Franklin a voucher to purchase that one-way bus ticket from Atlanta to Louisville. He had contacted them saying he needed help returning home to Louisville because he had spent the last two years in Atlanta searching for his runaway daughter that he could not find. This is a lie, but he gets his ticket and he heads to Louisville. Pretty much everyone he had come across in Louisville before his arrest thought he was an odd dude and no one ever saw a little boy with him. Fitzgerald believes that Franklin killed Michael Hughes in the week leading up to that hospital stay and that he had checked himself into the hospital to decompress from what he had done. Mm -hmm. The day before Franklin checks himself into the hospital back in Atlanta, he had gone to check out a vehicle that a woman had placed for sale online. It was September 20th. The woman drove the car to a middle ground meeting area and Franklin hops in to do a test drive. Within minutes, he attacks this woman who is able to get out of the car before Franklin speeds off, stealing her car. When Fitzgerald comes across this information, he knows the car needs to be found. Inside of the address book found in Franklin's belongings was the phone number for Rebecca Barr. This is a lady that had known Franklin during his time growing up in a group home, but she hadn't spoken with him in years. William Ray, a 20-year FBI agent, reaches out to Rebecca and she agrees to help detectives find Michael. So Rebecca starts calling Franklin at the prison where he was awaiting trial. She leaves this message for him telling him to call her back. They end up talking so often that her phone bill comes out as more than $300, which the FBI reimburses her for. But she's just asking Franklin what he's been up to, why he's in prison, trying to get information about Michael. And Franklin is asking Rebecca about, like, are you working with the police? Rebecca swears she's not working for the police, but no, she's really not getting any information out of him. Franklin's public defender was Susan Otto, and when Fitzgerald receives instructions from Floyd on how to get Michael back from the mafia who took him, the investigator hands over this letter to Susan. Franklin is made aware and becomes irate. He calls Rebecca, telling her that the FBI has messed up. Now the mafia is going to kill his son. 
Now they're going to pull him out of a creek. This is just a super weird thing to say. Still, the mafia didn't take him. He's acting like he it almost seems like he's trying to put the blame onto the prosecutors for like sharing the letter on how to get Michael back. And like that's why Michael will be found dead because the prosecutors shared this letter. But that's not true. So it's Mark Yancey and Edward Cumega that are the prosecutors assigned to Franklin's case. Remember, Yancey was the one who helped initiate the kidnapping warrant to allow Fitzgerald to arrest Franklin over in Kentucky. Edward Cumega is the lead prosecutor. They need to prove that Franklin was not within his legal and parental rights to take Michael from the elementary school. Otherwise, his federal kidnapping charges will not stick. Franklin says that since he took care of Michael, he was loosely defined as Michael's parent. Franklin's charges are for kidnapping, interstate transportation of a stolen vehicle, and possession of a firearm. This case becomes Mark and Edward's full-time job. They're working on it 24-7. They learn every detail they can about Franklin, Suzanne slash Sharon, and Michael. The prosecutors had a strong feeling Michael was dead, but they can't prove it, regardless of interviews where witnesses had suggested Michael was killed. A prison inmate from the Oklahoma County Jail claims to investigators that Franklin was talking about how he threw Michael off of a bridge by saying, quote, I could hear the little bastard scream as he fell to the river below. Another witness says that Franklin killed Michael and discarded him in a drain pipe. But the most convincing witness was Franklin's own sister, Dorothy Leonard. After Franklin calls her from the Oklahoma County Jail, she immediately calls the Oklahoma FBI office. I'm sorry, but my brother just told me how he killed Michael. He said that he drowned Michael. Her voice starts to crack. He said Michael was always crying and he couldn't shut the brat up. Franklin told Michael to get into the back, into the bath back at the hotel and lay on his stomach. But Michael saw Franklin also removing his clothes and asked what he was doing. Franklin said that he told Michael they were going to play games. Dorothy goes on to tell Fitzpatrick that Michael was screaming for Franklin to get out of the bath. And Franklin asked Michael if he loved him. When Michael says no, he shoves Michael's face into the water, only bringing it back up to ask again, do you love me? This happens three times. Franklin was so mad after asking for a third time and not receiving the answer he wanted. He holds Michael's face in the water and he drowns him. Dorothy is mortified to repeat what Franklin has told her. Dorothy is mortified to repeat that Franklin had told her he, quote, discarded the little son of a bitch, end quote. Dorothy cries to Fitzpatrick that she's shaking. He put Michael into the trunk of a car. He drove him out to get rid of him. He abandoned the car in a parking lot. On January 14th, 1994, the car stolen from that woman in Atlanta, a Dodge Shadow, is found in a parking lot and cadaver dogs alert on the trunk. On January 18, 1995, Franklin Floyd is indicted on kidnapping, carrying a firearm, and stealing a car by force. He could face life in prison if he is convicted on all of these charges. Judge Wayne E. Alley is set to preside over the trial scheduled for Wednesday, March 29, 1995. Judge Alley doesn't admit anything into evidence regarding 
a murder. He keeps this as a kidnapping trial since no body has been recovered. Like the narcissist Franklin is, he pulls a Ted Bundy and is allowed to act as his own attorney. He didn't think the public defender could argue his case as good as he can, so she is appointed as his co-counsel. Jennifer testifies against Franklin Floyd during the trial. Joe Fitzpatrick also testifies. And when the trial concludes, the jury returns a verdict by the end of the afternoon, guilty on all charges. At the sentencing trial on August 10, 1995, Franklin makes a statement about how he is an old man who cannot do harm anymore. He's going to die in prison, so he wants everyone to take what he has to say into consideration. Franklin talks about his love for Michael and how his life ended up here because of his childhood trauma. The defense asks the judge for the minimum sentence of 20 years. The prosecution asks for a life sentence, explaining that it's been 338 days since Michael was taken. If he were still in his foster home, he would be going into the second grade with friends and in a home with a family that loves him. Judge Alley sentences Franklin to 52 years and three months in prison with no possibility of parole. Since Franklin is in his 50s at the time of sentencing, he was sure to die in prison. Everyone is pleased with the conviction and the sentence, but no one feels like the case is complete. There were still so many questions surrounding the little girl Franklin kidnapped, raised, and likely murdered. One thing that left a lump in Fitzpatrick's throat was information gathered during Franklin's kidnapping trial. And I don't mean information presented in trial. I mean Fitzpatrick gets a page during the trial that he has to step out for. Remember when you had a pager? like buzzes and it like pulls up a phone number right and then you're supposed to call that phone number yeah I totally remember you having one for work yes I hated it at the hospital uh-huh. <laughs> it's it's crazy how technology advances so quickly it's like beep 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 <laughs> then you'd look at the phone number yep so that's what Fitzpatrick gets he gets this page And there's a number on the pager for Fitzpatrick to call Tom Jordan, a fellow FBI special agent. There's something you need to come see and it cannot wait. Tom had just came across some evidence. A man named Luther Masterson had called the FBI after working on a trailer in his auto body shop. Recently, he had purchased a white 1994 Ford pickup and this trailer was for that truck. Luther had gotten a great deal on this Ford because the insurance company, State Farm, was selling it to gain back some of the money they had lost on a payout when this truck had been stolen. While Luther is underneath the truck, he finds a manila envelope taped to the underside. He figures it's filled with drugs, and he's curious. We would all open the envelope, right? But Luther doesn't find what he's expecting. Instead, he pulls out a handful of photographs. As he starts to flip through these photos, he gets nauseous, and a phone call to his local police station follows quickly. Officer Gary Hines gets the call. He comes, confiscates the photos, and looks up the VIN number for the truck. It belonged to James Davis before the insurance claim. If you don't remember, James is the principal who got tied to the tree. This is the truck Franklin kidnapped Michael in. So the photos tie back to Franklin Floyd. 97 photos were found of young girls aged toddler through teenagers. 
the girls in the photos were mostly nude, some wearing lingerie and posed. Many pictures showed these young girls performing sex acts. Fitzpatrick can barely stand to sort through the photos, but he's able to divide divide them into four groups. One set of photos seems to be taken on a boat. The second set seems to be of two young girls around the age of 10, posing in clothing far too mature for them. The third set of photos are of one girl growing from toddler to adult. Most photos are posed exposing her vagina. This is Sharon, a.k.a. Suzanne. Fitzpatrick's stomach turns. The fourth set of photos are of a curly-haired brunette woman around the age of 19 or 20. Fitzpatrick doesn't know it yet, but these photos of our Cheryl Ann Camesso. She is pictured nude, her hands are tied behind her back, and a blindfold covers her eyes. Her face is swollen and bloody. Clearly, she's been beaten severely. She's posed in multiple positions, laying on her back and her stomach. Her vagina and anus were exposed in these pictures, and many of the photos were close-ups of these areas along with her breasts. Burn marks can be seen around her anal section. This girl had been tortured. And when Fitzgerald brings in prosecutors Ed Cumega and Mark Yancey, they are blindsided, explaining that these look like snuff photos. While everyone had suspected Sharon had been abused all of those years by Franklin, these photos bring a dark cloud over everyone that day, as the horror of what she went through was made so clear in these evil pictures. The men get to discussing the legal repercussions that can be done with the photos. At the time they are found, they don't feel like they can admit the photos into evidence. Remember, these pictures are found during the kidnapping trial. But since they can't admit them at this point, they all just hold off. Happening in parallel with the kidnapping case, it's the same year, 1995, on March 29th, when a man named Terry Lee Richard is working as a laborer off of I-25 Highway. Terry needs to pee during his shift, and he decides to do this by just walking through a hole in a chain link fence and back into some bushes. It's 40 feet away from the highway. He sees an object that he assumes is a volleyball, and he nudges it with his foot to turn it over. There are two holes, revealing to Terry that this is a skull. The workers are able to flag down a state trooper on the highway. The death of this Jane Doe is ruled a homicide, but the case sits still until a year later in 1996. And that is where we will end part three, because this is crazy long. Oh my goodness. Thanks for listening. I'm Kayla Waters. My co-host is Alicia Jenkins. My palate cleanser giver is Charlie Waters. And all our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Please make sure to find our podcast on social media and interact with us. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and more. Visit our website at www.truecrimeexposedpodcast.com. Hi, my name is Charlie Waters, and today we're going to be talking about a skid steer, because my dad also drives a bobcat, and a bobcat is a skid steer. Did you know I've driven one? We do lots of hard work in the dirt. Do you know why this equipment is called a skid steer? This is a big piece of equipment with a 
bucket on it, and it doesn't have wheels. It has tracks. These tracks don't steer. They're in a fixed, straight line. So when you turn right or left, the machine turns by skidding, and that's why it's called a skid steer. Bye. Have a great day. For an organization today, I want to reference a resource number you can use if you are experiencing trouble at home, any sort of domestic violence, if you're scared within your home. This case is obviously so many things because like the title of the episode, it is a maze of deceit. But one of the elements is domestic violence. This is the home Sharon grew up in, someone who eventually becomes her husband. And she really needed help. If you are feeling that desperation, please call the National Domestics Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233. You can also send a text with all caps START, S-T-A-R-T, to 88788. You can also visit their website at thehotline.org. Find all the information, report what you're going through, find resources. Just please reach out and get the help that you deserve.